You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. My wife has been there her whole life because she's Ukrainian, and I'm not going to tell you how many years that is because I want her to like me when we're done. We have two kids. Abigail is 10. Isaac is 8. They're off in the Sunday school right now. We're ministering in a city called Svitlovotsk, which if you don't speak Russian, might be hard to pronounce. Any Russian speakers? No? None? All right. So I'm going to help you. There's a trick to pronouncing this city. You know sweet and low, little pink packets that give you cancer? So take out the N. You don't need it. Just think sweet, low. Let's do it. Ready? Sweet, low. And then tag on Volks like a Volkswagen. So it's sweet, low, Volks. Congratulations, you speak Russian. We actually just celebrated the 12-year anniversary since we planted the church there back in June. I'm also currently serving as the coordinator for a ministry called City to City Ukraine. This is a ministry that works to see gospel renewal in the cities of Ukraine, primarily through training of pastors and church planners. I will get back and, and share a little bit more about some things that God is doing, what's happening in Ukraine. But like Nick said, we want to get into the Word this morning. And what I'll be sharing is actually one of the points of our church's vision Our church has a vision statement. It's four simple points. And it's enjoy Jesus, stand fast in grace, live in love, and reach the world. And it's the first of those points that I want to speak with you about this morning, enjoying Jesus. If there is a God, and I'm assuming that most of you believe there is a God, one of the great questions of life is this. How should we relate to God? What's the nature of our relationship to this God? And although it might be very rarely heard, I want to suggest to you that the answer to that question, the best, most biblical answer to that question is to enjoy him. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that might sound odd to you. That might not be the answer you're expecting to hear. You might think that a Christian would generally say something like, well, to obey God, that's first and foremost, or to serve him. And in in fact, many people would give those answers. And if you are a Christian, it's possible you thought of one of those answers. But today we're going to look at some of these commonly given answers about how we should relate to God. And although they do have elements of the truth, as we'll see, they're ultimately not the best answer. And then we will look at the right relation of a Christian to God, which is ultimately to enjoy him. We will get to a particular passage of scripture, which you saw in your bulletins, but this is going to be the world's longest intro, I'm just warning you. So, uh, first of all, a few common answers, a few, in some sense, false ways to relate to God. One Christian maybe would say, uh, you know, that first and foremost, as Christians, we should serve God. Now, that sounds right, that sounds good, but to understand why it's not ultimately the best answer, we need to ask another question. If a Christian says that first and foremost, we should serve God, that's the nature of our relationship to him, what picture does that person have of their relationship with God? Well, if we're talking about serving, then probably the main picture is between a master and a servant. Now, is God a master in some sense? Is he a a Lord? He is. The Bible says that he is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. The disciples refer to themselves sometimes as servants of Christ. But if that describes um, the, the main heart of our relationship to God, if that describes the essence of how we relate to him, there's a problem. See, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, I no longer call you servants. 
he was indicating, Jesus was, was showing the depth of their relationship now by saying that you're not servants anymore, you're not slaves. The Apostle Paul continues that same idea in Romans 8 where he says that you have not received the spirit of bondage or slavery in some translations to again live in fear. See, if our relationship to God is first and foremost the relationship of a servant to his master, then it's a relationship based on fear. It's about fulfilling the tasks that we're given so that we don't get punished, so that we don't have negative consequences. And so the servant, he, he does a lot of things, he's very busy, but all that he does, he's motivated by fear. That kind of a relationship is very consumeristic from the side of the master, right? He doesn't have the slave around to be his friend, he has the slave around to do stuff, to get some work out of him. In fact, the relationship is secondary to what that servant does. And it only exists as long as the servant is fulfilling what he's supposed to fulfill. Otherwise, he's gone, you know, or worse. And the sad thing is that there are far too many Christians who relate to God like that, like servants, like slaves, not in the good sense. The relationship with God is based on fear, that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then God is going to punish me, he's going to throw me out. There's this impression that, that God is interested in us as one would be interested in a workhorse, not for the sake of any kind of personal relationship, but just what you can get out of him. And this leads to a relationship with God when we have that attitude that goes up and down all the time. Instability, based on how we think we're doing at any given moment. That Christian, if he sees God in this light, is living constantly under threat. Fortunately, that is not the picture of God's relationship to the church in the Bible. If it were, there would be no good news. There would be no gospel. It would be all about what we do rather than about what Christ has done. And that would be very bad news. Now, there is a sense in which we are to serve God. The Bible talks about that. But not as slaves. Not out of fear. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle that perfect love casts out fear. So in what way are we supposed to serve God? We'll get back to that. But let's look at another common answer. Another Christian might say, well, first and foremost, we're supposed to relate to God. Uh, we're supposed to obey him. We're supposed to follow. And again, that sounds good. That sounds right. But to understand why that's not ultimately the best answer, we have to ask the same question. What's the picture that this Christian has if he says, first and foremost, I have to follow and obey? Well, quite possibly, it's the picture of a teacher and a disciple. Now, again, is Christ our teacher? Yes, he is, right? He says as much himself. The Bible says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. And frequently, Christians are called disciples in the New Testament. So we are to follow him, but not simply as a disciple follows his teacher. See, the relationship between a teacher and a disciple might be a step above the relationship between a slave and a master, but there's still a big problem. There's still a big problem if that's the primary picture that we have of how we relate to God. Because in this case, in the relationship between a disciple and a teacher, now it's flipped around. Now it's the disciple who's consumeristic. A person comes to a teacher to get something from him, some skill, some knowledge set, some ability that that teacher can pass on to him, and when he's received what he thinks he needs to receive, he moves on. He moves on to somebody else who can give him more knowledge or, or a different skill set. And in the case of a teacher and a student, that's perfectly fine and normal. And the teacher, if he's a good teacher, should want that disciple to move on, should want him to leave. It's a very impermanent relationship. 
In reality, it's merely a means to an end. Again, the student does not come to the teacher to have a relationship with the teacher, to be friends with the teacher. He comes to get something from him. See, a Christian who views Jesus primarily as a teacher is a Christian primarily focused on themselves, on what we know, on what we can do. Christ is made a means to the goal of attaining spiritual knowledge or growing in personal morality or some form of wisdom. And unfortunately, there are too many Christians who think that that's really the essence of the Christian life to learn more, to know more, to be able to do more, get rid of some bad habits along the way, etc. Now, is Jesus concerned with our personal transformation? Yes. But transformation is not an end in and of itself. Our growth, our gaining of knowledge, spiritual knowledge, our transformation as far as our personal lives, that's not an end in itself. It's for something else. Why should we follow him? Again, hold that question, we will get back to it. I told you this was gonna be the world's longest intro. Another Christian might say something like, well, first and foremost, as Christians, we ought to glorify God. And depending on how you understand that word, that could be the right answer, but it's probably not the right answer because we probably don't understand it correctly. Again, the same question, right? If a Christian says, first and foremost, we should glorify God, what's the picture they have of their relationship? Well, most likely it's the picture between a king, a glorious ruler, and uh, his subjects, right? We, we talk about glorifying God, and probably we think about God's majesty, his power, his holiness, and so on. Now, again, is God a king? Yes. The Bible says he's the king of kings. There's none higher. He is majestic. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He's worthy of worship. But if simply realizing that, if simply recognizing those bare facts is all that we mean when we say glorify God, we're not actually glorifying him. What does it mean to glorify God? Again, too many people think that that simply means recognizing these given truths about him, about his power, his majesty, his holiness, and so on. Perhaps even acknowledging those facts with a measure of fear. But that can't be what it means biblically to worship God. Think for a second about the picture that the Bible gives of Satan. Does Satan realize these facts about God's all-powerfulness, about his majesty? He does. The Bible says that he has seen it. He's seen God's unveiled glory. He realizes these facts better than we do. Does he have a measure of fear in light of these facts? Yes. The Bible says that the demons believe in God and they tremble. But does Satan worship God? Not at all. Well, Let's think for a second what that means. That means that simply acknowledging these facts about God, even if we have a measure of fear in light of them, is not worship. Because Satan does all that and he doesn't worship. In reality, if that's where our worship ends, our relationship to God is not much better than that of the demons. So again, the question remains, what is the biblical meaning of worship? We said that Satan recognizes facts about God. He realizes them. He's afraid of them. But rather than worship, he's a blasphemer. What makes him a blasphemer is that in light of all of these things, it disgusts him. He hates it. Yes, he realizes that this is the case, but he hates it. He has absolutely no joy in it. That's the essence of what makes him a blasphemer. And that should give us a hint to what the biblical definition of worship really is. See, if the opposite of worship, blasphemy, is to hate and be disgusted by these truths about God, then the essence of worship 
is to find delight and enjoyment in all that God is. We use the word worship in a Christian context mostly interchangeably with the word praise. Praise and worship, not to get into the technical differences. But think for a second, what is praise? What does it mean to praise? Step outside of the religious context. Step outside of the church world for a minute. When we watch a movie or we read a book and the story is just incredible, right? It just, it just grips you, right? And, and if it's a movie, you know, the acting is just fantastically done. What do you do? You know, you post on Facebook, watching movie, awesome. Hashtag love it, okay? So, you know, or you tell your friends, you're like, man, you guys, you have to check this out. It was so good. What are you doing? You're pra- exactly, you're praising, right? You're praising that movie or that book, that story. Similarly, if you go to a restaurant or somebody makes a meal for you, right, and, and you, you enjoy it, what do you do? Oh, that was so, so delicious. Thank you. Or, you know, five stars on Yelp, bing, if anybody still uses Yelp, I don't know. But what are you doing? You're praising. Listen, praise is simply the expression of your delight in something. That's what it means to praise, to express your delight in something. So when we talk about praising God, worshiping God, what are we really saying? We're saying that true worship, true praise, is to enjoy him and express that delight to his glory. So, biblically speaking, it's impossible to worship God, to worship Jesus, if we don't first enjoy him. Again, if, if for us, worship means simply saying the words and acknowledging the facts and having some, some vague concept of, of fear before God, that's not real worship. Jesus convicted convicted the Pharisees saying that you worship me with your lips, you're saying all the right things, you acknowledge all the right truths, but your hearts are far from me. So how can we begin to, as Christians, enjoy Jesus? Surely we can't just say, oh, okay, well, in that case, I'm going to start enjoying Jesus now. Again, we'll get back to that question, but let's look at one more answer before we do. To our original question, right, what what should be the relationship of of a person to God? Somebody might answer and say, we should love God. And again, if we rightly understand that term, that could very well be the right answer. But the problem is that we often define love in the wrong way. We love ice cream and we love America's Got Talent and we love our mom and we love God. Hopefully not all in the same way. There's a problem if that's all in the same way. What does it mean biblically to love God? And here I would suggest to you that the biblical definition for the love of God is the same as the biblical definition for worshiping God, which is to enjoy him. Now let's open and read together Ephesians chapter five. Told you it was a long intro. Ephesians chapter five, and we'll start at verse 22. Here Paul writes, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This passage lays out for us the relationship between the church and Christ. It's not just love. We said that loving God could be the right answer, but it's not just loving God in some vague way. It's a very specific love. It's actually, Paul writes, the love that exists between a bride and a groom. And if we go back and we ask the same question that we've asked about all the other answers, somebody who answers that first and foremost we ought to enjoy Jesus, what is the picture that that person has of their relationship with God? Well, I think we could very well say that it's this picture we find in the Bible. The picture between a bride and a groom. It's the picture of a husband and wife in a relationship of intimacy, of mutual delight. And this is actually an illustration that God uses throughout the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, God speaks of himself as a husband to his people. Unfortunately, they're often pictured as the adulterous wife because they go and uh, serve other gods. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the bridegroom by John the Baptist. And then later he refers to himself as the bridegroom. Uh, obviously, this is a picture that the Apostle Paul uses where we just read in Ephesians. And all the way to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, near the end, the last chapters, we see that the church is described as the bride of Christ, dressed in white at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's only in this context, when our relationship to Christ is as his bride, when the essence of how we relate to him is to enjoy him, it's only in this way that all the other Part, partial truths in the other answers can be rightly fulfilled. We said we are called to serve Jesus in some sense, but certainly not as a slave. Well, in what sense? As a beloved bride. Not out of fear that, that, that he'll punish us or that he'll throw us away, get rid of us. Not in order to earn his love, but rather because in faithfulness he has made a covenant with us. He has loved us to the end, giving himself on the cross for us to make us his own. We serve him as an expression of that delight, of that intimacy. Not in order to earn relationship, but because we've already been given it through the cross. Similarly, we follow Jesus, again, not simply as a disciple follows his teacher to get something, but as a bride follows her groom. He's not just a means to some end, spiritual knowledge, getting rid of bad habits, whatever. Christ himself is the goal. He is the end. Following him, obeying him, primarily is to enjoy being with him so that there's nothing else that hinders that. We do desire to be transformed into his image. Again, not simply so we can say, look at me, I'm better, but so that we can draw closer so that there's nothing that hinders that closeness with Christ. As we said, again, we do glorify him, but not simply as a subject glorifies their king. Rather, we praise him in the sense of, we already said, delighting in him, expressing that delight as a beloved bride rejoices in her groom. We delight in him because as this passage says in Ephesians that we just read, he's loved us, he's given himself for us. He gave up his glory and his beauty on the cross so that we might be made perfect without spot and without blemish. And we delight in the beauty and the glory of his love. Right? How can we come, we asked this question earlier, how can we come to that place of enjoying Jesus? It's not something that we can just decide, I'm going to enjoy him now. Rather, it's the response of our soul to beholding all that he did for us, first and foremost on the cross. And that doesn't mean that our enjoyment will always be full and perfect and pure, but it must be present in true worship. We make the choice to 
behold what he's done, to turn our minds and our hearts to the cross again and again. And that is what calls forth the delight. So to worship Jesus, to love him in the biblical sense really is the same thing, to delight in him, to enjoy him as a bride does her groom. That's the heart of true worship. True worship is not just a project of self-improvement motivated by fear and duty. Again, unfortunately, there's too many Christians who call that worship. Rather, worship is raptured delight in the arms of our Savior. Now, we might find that difficult to grasp, difficult to accept, because we've really got this very stoic, pharisaic almost idea in our heads that worshiping God couldn't possibly mean enjoying him. It couldn't possibly be pleasurable. Aren't we supposed to hate it? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to at least have to, you know, force ourselves to do it? Christian author C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure some of you are familiar with, he says that our problem is not that we seek pleasure too much, but that we seek it too little. He says that we're half-hearted creatures toying about with drink and sex and ambition and content with these things. We're like little children, he says, playing and making mud pies in the slums, and we don't even realize that God offers us a vacation at the seaside. He ends that passage saying we are far too easily pleased. The problem is not that we have to kill our desire for enjoyment. No, the problem is that it's not strong enough, that we're content to direct it at these things that ultimately are false gods rather than towards Christ himself, who's the only one that can fulfill it. Now, understand, that doesn't mean that we're making a false god out of pleasure. It's not that we're now worshiping pleasure rather than God. Instead, another Christian author, John Piper, says in his book, very pointedly, the book is called Desiring God, he says that this understanding of enjoyment as the essence of worship, he says, it is not making a God out of pleasure, rather it is saying that you have already made a God out of whatever you find the most pleasure in. It's not that we make a God out of pleasure, but whatever you find the most pleasure in, that's already your God. But perhaps this idea is summed up best by the psalmist in the psalm we actually read this morning together, Psalm 16, where he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we desire to see happen in Ukraine. True worshipers coming to delight in the gospel of Christ, coming to delight in all that God has done for us. Um, now, briefly, just wanna share a few ways that you guys can be involved with what God is doing there, and at the same time, kind of a little bit more information. The first way that you guys can be involved with God's work there in Ukraine would be to pray for us. And you can toss up that slide. There we go. I truly believe that we would not see most of what we're seeing God do there if it weren't for all the people praying for us. So it's very, it means a lot that you would pray for us. A few ways that you could pray, you can see up here. One of them would be for God's peace for Ukraine. As I think probably most of you know, there is a war going on in Ukraine. It's been going on for over three years now. Uh, yes, it is still going on, although you probably haven't heard about it lately on the news. There's a couple reasons for that. One of them is that it's at a semi-frozen state, meaning that no territory has exchanged hands for over two years. Uh, however, there is shots and artillery being fired every day. Most days, one or two people gets killed. That's kind of the status quo, which is a very sad status quo to have, but that's what it is. If we're talking totals, there have been over 10,000 people killed. Some put the number as far as, as high as 15,000. Internally displaced refugees within Ukraine, that is those who were living in the area of fighting but have now moved to other parts of Ukraine, many people put around two million. So there is a lot of need. The people that are still living along the front line of fighting, you know, 
Mortars will fly through their roof, destroy their house. There's a lot of suffering. And yet at the same time, we see God, as it says in Genesis, taking what was intended for evil and using it for good. That area of Ukraine was formerly known as an area where people were more hardened towards the gospel, and now people are coming to Christ. Many people are coming to Christ. There's actually not even enough pastors and church planners to keep up with the, with the people coming to Christ in those areas. Why? Because they're faced with questions of life and death every day. They're faced with eternity right before them. So you could pray for that, pray for God to raise up ministers, pastors, church planners that would come and serve those people. And along those lines, as you can see up there also, pray for gospel-centered leaders for Ukraine in general. This is a need within our city, which is a smaller city of about 50,000 people. This is a need within the Calvary Chapel network in Ukraine as a whole. There's about 20 in the country at this moment and beyond that network. Uh, and this is one of the things that we're seeking to promote through the City to City Ukraine network. Again, it, we work with multiple various uh, evangelical denominations. We did a, our first conference last fall and had about 150 pastors and church leaders from all over Ukraine, all different denominations come. And they're thirsty for more training. So one of the things we're hoping to do is to be able to translate some more of the training material that, that City to City has. So you could pray that God would bring in the funding to do that. Another thing to pray for would be reaching the city with the gospel. Just that God would continue to do what he's been doing these 12 years, that we, our church, would be an effective light for Christ uh, in the community that we're in. You could also pray for our church building. It's in, it's in construction phase still. The leadership of our church about two and a half years ago, we... Uh, started very seriously praying and seeking God, believing that this was the time for our own facility of some kind. We didn't know what that would be at the time. We set an initial fundraising goal of $60,000. To date, God has brought in 54 of that, so 90%. Um, and your guys' church has been a part of helping us meet that goal. Now that we actually have a building um, and we're in the construction process, we realized that that wouldn't be the, the final goal even when we set it. We've set a new goal of 80,000, but that still means we're about two-thirds two of the way there. So we're praying that God would bring in that last about $26,000. And again, he's, he's just blown us away with his faithfulness because when we started this, we really had almost nothing in savings to do this. So we believe that he will bring it to completion. We're praying that we would be able to do that by the end of this fall. So you could pray for that as well. Of course, it's in, in the Lord's timing. And then another last prayer request would be just for health and God's provision for our family. Health tends to be an area of spiritual attack for us before an outreach, before a conference of some kind. Usually somebody gets dreadfully sick, so you could pray for that. And then if you would like to, if you feel that God's putting on your heart to be involved in financial support, there's ways you can do that. For our family, we're currently at about 70, 75% of our long-term support goal which means we're hoping to raise about another $700 a month in regular support. So we're asking God to raise up 20 families that would commit to regularly supporting $40 a month or 40 families that would commit to supporting $20 a month, however he wants to work that. Pray about that. Pray if God would maybe call you to be one of those families. And then lastly, we would just encourage you guys to connect with us. As you can see, we're on social media. We're on Facebook. Twitter. I don't really know why anyone's on Twitter, but we're there. And if you're there too and you also don't know why, you can follow us and we'll be there not knowing why together. So we do have a website, as you can see there. If you access it from America, it should go right to the English version. If you see a lot of scary letters, you don't know what they are. That's the Cyrillic alphabet. Find the button that says English and that will be your salvation. 
And then lastly, uh, the final uh, link up there is for, we send out a quarterly email update. So once every three months, we try to send out kind of the latest news, latest ways that you guys can be praying. If you'd like, you can actually just punch that address into your smartphone, sign yourself up. So thank you guys for having us. Thank you for your prayers, your support, and being involved with God's work in Ukraine. So we're going to pray for Ben, but just uh, some thoughts as he was speaking. You know, Jesus, here's what Jesus had to say. It says um, in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus looked out upon the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, the very name of our church indicates that belief because Jesus said it, that the fields are white for the harvest, and, um, and we want to be part of praying and part of going, part of sending. Whichever role it is that God is calling you to in that, I believe that we all fit into one of those three categories. You should be praying, going, or sending, or maybe just all of the above. I was in Ukraine with Ben and some of the other leaders over there in what was that, April? Yeah. And one of the things that George, who, who was also here last year, George Markey was telling me, is that really the only limitation they have on starting new churches and reaching more people in Ukraine is people. If they had more pastors, if they had more, I mean, it's not even so much a money issue, it's even just people and pastors. And so I would like you to be praying for that. And maybe there are even some of you here who God would want to send. So I remember when my pastor said that to me, and I was like, you're crazy. And then I actually was uh, one of those who was sent. So I'm going to throw that out there and ask you guys to pray about that. Maybe not only would God have you be one who sends and one who prays, maybe he would even have you be one who goes. Would you please bow your heads with me, and let's pray for Ben and the work in Ukraine and all of these things he's brought before us. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we pray that truly we would have that kind of relationship with you that your word describes, that Ben was pointing out to us today, that relationship of love that is similar to the relationship that a, a spouse, two spouses have with each other, a husband and a wife, as they love each other in that reciprocal building up kind of love. Lord, we pray that that is the kind of relationship we would have with you. Lord, thank you that you say, um, no longer do I call you my servants, but now I call you my friends. And Lord, thank you that you welcome us into that relationship. And our response to that is to say, Lord, thank you that you call us your friends. It makes us want to serve you all the more out of joy. Lord, we want to be like that one who found the, uh, the treasure hidden in the field and in his joy went and sold all that he had that he might take hold of it because, Lord, that is what you did for us. And so, Lord, we pray for Ben. We pray for Lena and the kids, and we pray for their family over in Svitlovots. We pray for the church there in Ben's absence and as, uh, as they move forward in reaching the city and in loving you and in standing firm in grace. Lord, we pray that you would bless them. We pray that your work there would grow, that many people would be reached through their services, through their online media, through everything that they do. We thank you, Lord, for Ben and his work with City to City Ukraine. We pray that that would flourish, and Lord, that it would be used by you to raise up many people, many workers for your harvest field, because Lord, as we know, the harvest is very plentiful. It's uh, the workers who are few. So Lord, we do pray earnestly that you would send workers into your harvest field. And Lord, if it is even us, we remember Isaiah, you know, the Lord said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah here I said, here I am, send me. But maybe there are some of us who would respond in that way to you as well. 
So we pray for Ben, we pray for his family, and we pray for Ukraine and the work that you're doing there. Lord, we ask that many people would come to know you there through their work, and we pray blessing upon them in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.